You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor at Washington Post Live and also co-author of the Early 202 newsletter. Today on our program, we have Texas Republican Congressman Michael McCall, who is also the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, or Foreign Relations, excuse me, yes, Foreign Affairs Committee. I always get confused between the Senate and the House uh, Foreign Committees. Uh, <laughs> Congressman McCall, thank you so much for joining us today. No, thanks, thanks, Leanne, thanks for having me. So, Congressman, I wanna talk about, I wanna start with uh, some news of the day. Uh, we all woke up this morning to news that Ukraine has damaged a key bridge between that connects Russia and Crimea. Russia has responded by saying they are going to uh, put in a military blockade of Ukraine's grain exports, which essentially feeds a large portion of the world. What is your reaction to how Russia is responding? I think it's very irresponsible. I think by blocking the Black Sea Grain Initiative that uh, the World Food Program was able to negotiate with uh, other nations, um, it, it will cause uh, famine uh, throughout uh, many parts of Northern Africa. It will cause a food sh shortage in Europe, but also the United States. So you're gonna see uh, food prices going up <clears throat> you know, all over the world. Globally, and it's very unfortunate that Putin has responded this way, but I'm not surprised. Uh, you know, Ukraine has not gone as well as he thought it would have. And now you're seeing this retaliation from him uh, that I think is going to put the world at risk. I know, I know um, David Beasley, who negotiated it last year, really appealed to Putin's, um, if he has any empathy, not to cause a global famine over, over this conflict. Unfortunately, Putin has decided to cause a global famine. Yeah, and that's a good reminder that Putin did this briefly last year. Uh, he says that, the, or the Russia says that this blockade will begin tomorrow on Tuesday. Is there anything that the United States can do or is trying to do that you're aware of? Well, you know, sadly, uh, it's not like NATO could come in and, and uh, stop this blockade. Uh, uh, I don't know if Ukraine is, is capable of stopping it themselves. So it's really up to negotiations. Uh, I, I would hope that countries like Turkey that are depending on, say, uh, the F-16s that uh, I sign off on, along with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee chairman and ranking member, that perhaps we can put some leverage on countries like Turkey to put leverage on Putin to, uh, to uh, undo this irresponsible act that's really going to cause um, Really, it's, it's going to cause a lot of deaths. I mean, people are going to die from this decision, innocent lives uh, of people starving, and it's a very sad situation. Um, speaking of Turkey, and uh, we'll talk about NATO, uh, there was the NATO conference just ended last week. There was an expansion of NATO with Finland joining, and the groundwork laid for Sweden to continue its entrance into NATO. Um, First, I want to ask you about that because Turkey was very much involved and they, uh, including this issue of F-16 airplanes from the United States. Do you think that Turkey should receive these F-16s and is that going to happen as far as you know? Yes, yeah, a great question. We didn't even want to, uh, we would not even entertain answering that question until Turkey agreed to the ascension of Sweden into NATO. 
now that they have agreed to that, and that will take place in October, um, you know, the notification comes from the executive branch uh, to the Congress. Uh, we will be reviewing that, uh, the, chair, the ranking member and myself, also with the Senate chairman and ranking member. Uh, I do think that that's a, a big step forward in the right direction. I know that Senator Menendez would like to see talks on uh, how to negotiate the, the GNC conflict that uh, Turkey and Greece have together. Um, you know, we've provided also F-35s to Greece. So um, I think Turkey's on a good path forward to this. Uh, but I would like to see, to put a little bit of leverage on them with the sale of F-16s to see if they can't put pressure on Turkey or provide some assistance to uh, getting this grain um, you know, out of Ukraine. The one thing I, I, I failed to mention, Leanne, is that it, in addition to the sea, you can get it out by rail. It just takes a lot longer of a process. So we can work with um, you know, the Eastern Baltic nations you know, going uh, through Romania. Turkey can be of great assistance, you know, with that uh, as well. Great. You have often said that the Biden administration is just too slow in their assistance of Ukraine, especially in giving uh, it military assistance. Um, I believe you said the same with the cluster munitions, which the administration agreed to recently. I want to ask you, just looking ahead, is there anything else that you know that Ukraine wants or needs that the administration has not yet agreed to? Yeah, I think most importantly, uh, the longer range artillery called attackers. Um, uh, in fact, I have many sources on the ground in Ukraine on the battlefront right now telling me that the cluster munitions have arrived. But still what they need desperately are these longer range artillery, you know, to hit the, uh, the depots, to hit the logistic supplies, uh, you know, hit uh, in longer range uh, to stop this threat. I, I've said all along, you know, if you're going to, if you're thinking about providing F-16s and start training the pilots. But Leanne, the situation we find ourselves in today is even though the president uh, decided to provide F-16s, after the G7 put pressure on him, that's not coming from the United States. That's just simply us giving other NATO allies permission to send their F-16s in. That will take, as I understand, um, a, a month or two. The problem is training the pilots. That could take, you know, four to six months. So it's way behind schedule. It would have been great to have had that in the counteroffensive, but we have neither. We don't have the air cover they need by supplying the F-16s, or they don't have the air cover they desperately need. I'm getting reports of you know Russian uh, aircraft and helicopters coming in and, and decimating the Ukrainians from the air. They don't have uh, superiority, they being the Ukrainians, uh, in the air, and they don't have longer range artillery. These are two things that are greatly impacting this counteroffensive. I think that's why it's not going as well as we had hoped. Um, in fact, I'm getting some very grim assessments, and it's very unfortunate because I think every time we give them what they need, they win. But when we slow walk it and we don't give them what they need, we give them just enough to survive, uh, and that's what's happening you know, right now. Any sense that these attackers are going to be provided anytime soon? Could it come in the next round of perhaps uh, Ukraine assistance? Um, could they? Could Congress? authorize it or um, fund it in the next assistance package? Yes, 
And, and something we can do in appropriations is we can direct funding towards certain uh, items like, say, attackums. Um, they've been very stubborn on, on these attackums. I've been working them for quite some time. You know, Leanne, we passed a bipartisan resolution now, the Foreign Affairs Committee, calling upon the administration to provide attackums, these longer range artillery, to Ukraine, and they still refuse, you know, to do so. It's interesting to me that when I talk to Secretary of Defense Ben Wallace, the UK Secretary of Defense, he told me, he said, yeah, I'm just tired of waiting for the United States, so we're going to send in our storm shadows, which is an equivalent of our attackums, and, and France is also sending in their longer range artillery, which, which will help. They just don't have the numbers that we do that can really make a difference. Uh, we'll continue to put pressure on the administration. Um, but, you know, when you have a bipartisan resolution coming out of the Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, I would hope they pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. uh, just this past week, the House passed its annual defense authorization bill. Uh, you told CBS's Margaret Brennan this weekend that you think that the final product is going to be bipartisan after the Senate passes theirs and the House and the Senate resolve their differences uh, because the House version was mostly partisan. I want to ask you specifically about uh, a faction of the Republican Party that has been opposed to assistance for Ukraine. We got the clearest number yet at how many there are. There were 70 Republicans who voted for an amendment last week to this bill that would that would end assistance to Ukraine. Of course, that's not a majority of Republicans, but it is a third. Are you concerned moving forward that this faction is going to grow and then it will be perhaps more difficult to pass additional security assistance for Ukraine? Well, I'm going to do something they advise every politician not to do, and that's speak the truth here. And I'm going to be honest with you. Yes, I, love it. I am very worried. I, I think that number, uh, well, the response I give is what you said. The majority of Republicans still voted to support Ukraine, and that's very significant, I think. Uh, the Reagan Institute came out with a poll recently finding that 71% of Republicans uh, support our efforts in Ukraine. But that num number is very disturbing, uh, Leanne, particularly uh, the timing of this vote was very uh, harmful and damaging to the counteroffensive itself. I can't think of a, a worse message to send to Putin than 70 members of the House voting to give assistance to Ukraine. Um, I thought it was, I personally thought it was irresponsible. I disagree with it, uh, but every member is entitled to their own, their own opinion. I think that, you know, if Ukraine could be successful in this counteroffensive, uh, every American likes to bet on a winning horse. But if they are not successful in the counteroffensive, I think that's going to greatly damage the, the morale, not only of uh, Ukrainians, but the will of the American people to support this fight. Um, and, you know, the longer it drags out, the worse it gets. And that's precisely what Putin wants. He wants a long, protracted conflict because he knows that long term that can impact not only the will of the American people, but the Europeans as well. That's why I keep calling on the administration to give them everything they need to try to end this as soon as possible. Do you know when the administration might ask for additional Ukraine funding? Well, you know, they're uh, fully funded until the end of the fiscal year. That would be the end of September. 
And so I anticipate what you're going to see, Leanne, and I don't have all the tea leaves here, but I would anticipate a supplemental coming out of the Senate that will include things like funding for uh, Israel, you know, uh, but will also involve funding for Ukraine. It will also include funding for Taiwan uh, and funding to counter China's aggressive, you know, uh, uh, behavior in the Pacific. I cannot say this stronger, strongly enough that I view this conflict in Ukraine as directly impacting what happens in Taiwan. Every Asian official I met, leader, told me that. Uh, I have no reason to not believe them. We've never seen a threat like this to Europe or to the Pacific since my father's war, World War II, since the greatest generation liberated Europe and the Pacific. That is why I feel Ukraine is important. Now, I know others make a binary choice between the border, the United States, Mexico border, and Ukraine, but I don't believe uh, that they're mutually exclusive. I think we can focus on our border in the United States, but also, also defend democracy and freedom uh, against Russian aggression. You know, I often ask my colleagues the question, what would Reagan do? What would Reagan have done? The man who took down the Soviet Union, he fought for democracy, freedom, and human rights. And that's what I believe my party, the Republican Party, should still stand for. And Chairman, that was a great segue into the issue of China, which I definitely am going to ask you about now. So first, you mentioned Taiwan. Is that still, is that your biggest concern as far as geopolitical economic tensions with China? Is it Taiwan or is it there's something else that uh, that you're most concerned about? Well, Taiwan is, uh, I think, in terms of immediate threats is, uh, most in the bullseye of an immediate threat from the CCP. I just returned from there, as you know, two months ago. They were very aggressive in their behavior. They surrounded the island with 10 battleships, 70 fighter jets. Uh, President Tsai told me not, not to worry. That was for her, not for me. But I got sanctioned by the Chinese Communist Party the day uh, that I left. And I say that just to illustrate how aggressive their posture has become in the Pacific. Uh, but what else, though, I think we need to be aware of, and uh, I think uh, I've been working very hard on export controls. Uh, we should not be exporting to China uh, things that they can use to put in their most advanced weapon systems. A good example is a hypersonic weapons built on the backbone of American technology. The spy balloon had American component parts, and I think it's very dangerous. Um, right now, we have three major technology companies that want to, uh, they're appealing to the White House to export advanced semiconductor chips that China could use to put in their AI. That's artificial intelligence that we know they're using to build a more advanced military system, uh, the likes of which we haven't seen. So we have to be very cognizant of this great power competition, uh, not only militarily, but economically. You know, and lastly, Leanne, it's, it's important to note that in the NDAA and in our defense appropriations bill that we'll be voting on soon, that we provide the naval ships necessary to compete with China, because right now China has more naval vessels than we do, than the United States. Mm -hmm. um, 
China's economy, there's reporting today about China's economy that in a post-COVID uh, economic scenario that their economy is still sluggish. It's still struggling. What is this give the United States an opening perhaps to enhance diplomatic efforts or does this make China more vulnerable? Well, I think you've identified one of the weak points. Now, China has a lot of strong points. Uh, their Belt and Road Initiative, for instance, it's hard to compete with them. Uh, but one of their weak points is they are over leveraged. And I think that is of concern with their economy. Uh, the other weakness is that they have a very an aging population with a younger population that cannot sustain it because of the one child policy that they have. Um, so I know Chairman Xi is worried about that, but overall Chairman Xi is very committed to restoring Imperial China and fulfilling Chairman Mao's promise. Uh, this is part of his legacy equation. Uh, he and Putin are in the same sort of frame of mind, same age, same legacy. Um, and that's why they're joined at the hip in this unholy alliance that they're in, along with Iran and North Korea. And so I think it's very important that we pay attention to what they're doing. Uh, we not sell to them equipment and technology they get used in their advanced you know, weapon systems. But we also compete with them economically. I think if, if we um, can compete economically with them and let them know that if they do invade Taiwan, there'll be not only military consequences, but also economic consequences, that will lead him to think twice about invading in the first place. And we know he's looking very closely at Ukraine. So that, you know, again, the more successful Ukraine is in this counteroffensive, the more we can deter Chairman Xi in his potential blockade, uh, which is probably the most likely scenario uh, with uh, Taiwan. But all the island Pacific nations are at threat against a rising uh, Communist Chinese party. The United States has tried to bolster its domestic manufacturing of semiconductors, which is something that China has really excelled in previously or up until now. Um, what sort of, is this exacerbating tensions between the U.S. and China? And should we continue along that road regardless of what the consequences are? Well, Ann, as you know, as the author, <clears throat> and I introduced the Chips for America Act, so I'm going to be a little biased in my opinion here. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I support my legislation. It was brought to me by, at that time, Secretary uh, Pompeo, uh, Wilbur Ross, National Security Advisor O'Brien, after COVID to pull supply chain out of, of China. And specifically, in this case, pull semiconductor supply chain out of China, but also Taiwan. Uh, as we look at the threat to Taiwan, you know, in addition to freedom and democracy, we have to look at the fact that TSMC is the largest manufacturer. We have offshored it for too many years to Taiwan. They currently manufacture 90% of the advanced global manufacturing for the world of advanced semiconductor chips. So imagine if a blockade was done tomorrow, cutting off the internet, shutting the island down, the consequences to the rest of the world if China either owned or broke uh, this, this chain, this global supply of advanced semiconductor chips. So that's why I do believe it's important that we uh, manufacture more in the United States. And not only semiconductors, but rare earth minerals 
that China has cornered probably 85% of the globe uh, on. Now, they do, are doing some retaliation uh, in, in this regard, which makes it even more imperative that we, we start the process, as we have, by the way, to manufacture here in the United States. Since the CHIPS Act was passed, you've seen hundreds of billions of dollars of investment, not only in my home state of Texas with Samsung and Texas Instruments, but Ohio with Intel, with New York, with Micron, uh, with TSMC expanding in Arizona. So you're seeing, you're seeing this expansion taking place right now. And I think that's very healthy not to be vulnerable on a foreign nation adversary for these important national security supply chains. What degree do you think corporate America is on board with de-risking this effort to, to, to decentralize this economy? That's such a great question because I think the fundamental question is, are they, do they put patriotism above making a dollar? Now, they would say both, right? We're patriots, but we also have a duty to our shareholders, and I understand that. And sometimes the shareholders may not care about uh, whether the country is patriotic. They just care about, you know, what the return on their investment is going to be. So I think we have to appeal to the greater investment community, um, you know, that this is important, uh, that these companies are, are important to invest in, that are making a patriotic move to manufacture here in the United States. But it's a valid concern. And I think, um, you know, the point I just raised of these semiconductor, some of these technology companies wanting to um, sell these ad advanced computer chips to China, uh, in my judgment, puts the dollar, almighty mighty dollar over what's in the best national security interest of the United States. Um, and so I'll speak out against that. Um, we can't, uh, we can stop it through export controls. And the policy all along that the administration and I have worked out is that legacy chips are fine because China already has that. You know, we're not talking about cutting off all trade with China either. There are many non-national uh, security related items with trade and commerce. What we're talking about really are these supply chains that really involve our national security interests. And that is the advanced semiconductor chips, the critical minerals. And also we need to start looking at medical supplies as well um, because we saw that very dramatically after COVID, uh, how they were able to almost extort uh, the rest of the world by hoarding uh, the personal protective gear. Mm -hmm. Just today, uh, uh, climate, climate Envoy John Kerry is in China uh, after a year hiatus um, talking to that country about climate initiatives. What do you hope to see come out of these conversations? Well, he testified before my committee and I had a very cordial exchange. I, I said, look, I, you know, I understand, you know, everybody wants to protect the planet, but they also want fairness. Uh, China, under the Paris Accords, not only is extended to 2030, well beyond our requirements, but because they can self-designate themselves as a developing nation, then they say, we can't comply until the year 2060. Now, my constituents and most American people know fairness. And to hold America to a different set of standards than China is not fair, in my view or theirs. But particularly to hold them to a 2060 standard when they call themselves a developing nation. But the fact is, Land, they're not a developing nation. They're the second largest economy in the world. They're a superpower. 
economically. And yet they call themselves a developing nation to get the benefits of not having to comply with the Paris Accords. And I just don't think that's fair. And I asked the Secretary to please bring this issue up. We voted a measure out of the House almost unanimously calling for the administration to, to, to not designate or uh, undesignate, if you will, China from being a developing nation. What this also means, Leanne, is it qualifies them for low interest, if not zero interest, loans from the World Bank because they're a developing nation. Then through the, this funds their Belt and Road Initiative that they then invest in de truly developing nations at a high debt rate with their own workers and exploit the rare earth minerals, usually take over a port. And if they go into debt, these developing nations, then the IMF will bail them out, which is, again, funded by majority, you know, the U.S. taxpayer. Uh, this is a really a manipulation of our of the United Nations institutions, our global institutions. And I think that practice needs to end. And I think the American people and, and elected officials up here are getting more educated on this issue. I want to ask you about Rob Malley. He is a State Department official in the Office of Special Envoy for Iran. Uh, he was pulled off that assignment about a month ago uh, with no explanation. Uh, recently, you suggested that perhaps there were leaks of classified information um, by Rob Malley. Do you have any proof that he did do that? Why do you think that that is a possibility? I, I don't have the proof, and, and this is our my concern. We've been uh, asking for his testimony on the Hill for months, um, and they have given us excuses like you know personal life issues, and I, I they were not transparent with us. Obviously, there's something else going on. And finally, um, I was I got a briefing from uh, the National Security Council, the uh, you know the the member in charge of the Middle East in a classified setting about what's going on with the Iran negotiations, their nuclear uh, weapons program, not by Robert Malley, because I had to find out in the press, like the Washington Post, uh, mm -hmm. that he's under investigation, not only by the diplomatic security corps, but by the FBI. And this raises serious concerns. I don't know what the problem is with his background checks and his security clearances. Uh, only what's been reported that classified documents have been mishandled. Now, that could be something very small in nature, or it could be very something very, very serious. And if I carry it to the, the most serious extreme, if he has leaked very sensitive or classified information to our foreign adversaries like Iran or Russia, that's a very serious uh, act uh, that would fall under you know treason. Now, I'm not saying that he has committed that, but we need to know what is going on. We need to be briefed in the Congress. By law, they're required to do so. And we have asked for that classified briefing. And if they do not, then we're prepared to move forward with a subpoena and eventually another contempt proceeding if necessary. They can't hide this from the Congress and the American people. There's too much at stake. This is the very same man who negotiated the Iran deal, the JCPOA, this is a man that the nations put their most, their biggest confidence in with some of the biggest secrets related to Iran's nuclear weapons program. And if there's anything that has compromised that, Congress needs to know.
Great. And tomorrow, uh, Israeli President Herzog will be meeting with President Biden and also delivering a joint address to Congress. Will you be attending? And what do you think his, what is the number one thing that you want to hear from him? Yes, I'll be meeting uh, with him tomorrow and I'll be on the escort committee at the joint session. Uh, I anticipate he's going to talk to a great extent about Iran. That, That is the biggest threat to Israel. Uh, right now. I, I hope he also talks about the Abraham Accords and how they want to strengthen their relationship with the Arab nations, like, for instance, Saudi Arabia and the Crown Prince. That would be a major breakthrough in peace in the Middle East and with the Abraham Accords. But I do think you're going to hear a lot about how they're worried about uh, a startup again of the Iran deal and what a threat that is to Israel um, uh, and their ability to move forward with a nuclear weapons program. Do you expect him to address uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and how that has created some sort of tense relations with the United States, his his far right government? Well, I, I anticipate that will be more uh, in the you know backdoor closed settings. I don't think that he would uh, reference any sort of internal political disputes at a joint session. So I would not um, you know anticipate that at all. You know, there it's a very interesting. The Knesset, I'm, you know, there are probably, I forget how many parties they have in Israel, but, it, it, you know, we have two, maybe three, if you want to look at independent, but uh, uh, they have, you know, uh, well over 20 different parties, I think, in their country. And it's uh, quite a coalition they've had to put together. But uh, they are a democracy in the Middle East and they're our ally. Um, and we want to continue our economic. Um, we provide them with military assistance. But I think our economic uh, opportunities with them in terms of innovation, technology, medical uh, uh, innovation uh, really makes us both stronger. Great. Chairman McCall, we are out of time. I really appreciate you spending half an hour with us this morning. Oh, thanks, Leanne. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.